The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Remain standing with me this morning as we continue our reading through the 119th Psalm. This morning we'll be in verses 97 through 104. This is the Word of God. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father God, we love you, and we trust you, and we thank you. We thank you for this day that you have given us. Thank you for this people you have gathered. But we thank you most supremely for your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is under the banner of his name that we come together this morning. We come as a people who seek to honor him as our Lord, to live lives of holiness that reflect his reign. as a testimony to the work that he does in the lives of broken and fallen men through the power of his spirit. So, Father, as we sit under this word this morning, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would be truly transformed by what we receive this morning from your lips. God, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning we return for what I believe will be the final time to this first half of Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 and yet again we come with a question. The interpretation that I have presented to you over all these weeks, if my understanding of this verse is correct, if the true and ultimate reason why one man is saved, the ultimate, ultimate reason why one man sits under the eternal and infinite and unending spiritual blessings of God, while another continues on in his sin, lost for all eternity. The only reason behind that, the ultimate and the true reason, is God's ultimate and sovereign election. If God really has chosen a specific individual people whom he would save 
from before the foundation of the world. If no one is saved unless God has chosen them, and if everyone whom God has chosen will be saved, then there's two questions that arise. Number one, what's the point in evangelism? Very closely related. Number two, can I then genuinely and freely extend the offer of salvation through Christ Jesus indiscriminately to everyone? That's a question that comes to the mind of anyone who grapples with these doctrines. I can assure you that I have wrestled with them for years on end. Does anything that we do matter? If God is truly sovereign, why pray, as we asked last week? Then this morning, if God is truly sovereign, why share the gospel? So I invite you to go ahead and stand to your feet, please. In the reverence to the reading of God's word, we return to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. This is the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God, and you are to receive it as such. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the truth, excuse me, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. All God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So again, I ask, if God has literally chosen every single person whom he will save, if there is absolutely nothing that we can do to add to or subtract from that number, if we do not have the ability to reach into the Lamb's book of life and scribble down some new name or scratch out another, then what's the point in evangelism? Should we really be out there telling lost men that if they would repent and believe that they will find eternal life in Christ Jesus? Isn't this a bit disingenuous? And again, as I told you in my introduction, this is a question that nearly every Reformed thinker, nearly every Reformed Christian has wrestled with at some point or another. Talking about men who sincerely desire to live under the weight of God's exhaustive sovereignty. We can't help but wonder at times if this whole thing isn't just a shell game. If God is truly and meticulously in control of literally everything that happens in this world, then does anything that we do matter? Do any of our decisions, do any of our choices, do any of our acts of obedience, do they amount to anything at all? Dear children, I tell you that if we don't come back to the scriptures, 
If we do not accept to, li- to live under the weight of that tension, that tension which I have told you I believe is intentional, the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, then you'll end up in a ditch. You'll end up with some very faulty, some horribly unbalanced theology. Eventually, you may end up believing that, no, evangelism doesn't matter. God will save whomever he will save, and he doesn't need my efforts. Why share the gospel with a man that I know is spiritually dead and cannot respond in repentant faith? If I see signs of life in a man, perhaps if I see evidence that the Spirit of God has regenerated him and given him eyes to see and ears to hear, maybe then I will share the good news. But otherwise, I will not beat my head against a wall. I will not tie myself up in knots. I will not torture the man standing across from me by calling him to do something that his heart simply will not allow him to do. Again, I promise you that I've grappled with these kind of thoughts for years. In addition to this, there come the taunts from the outside. Men who don't truly understand what we believe. Men who have built a straw man out of every Calvinist. They believe that we cannot truly preach John 3.16 without our fingers crossed behind our backs. We cannot extend them in a true gospel invitation. We cannot be sincere in our promises that any who come to Christ in repentant faith will be saved. So my hopes this morning is that I would calm some of your hearts because I know that some of you have got those same objections rising up within yourself and coming from people on the outside, coming from people that you love. And so my point is not to disprove what the non-believers say. My point is to steady your heart to sharpen your minds. But more than this, my hope is this perhaps by the Spirit of God, he might light a fire within your soul that it may become the ultimate passion of your entire life to propagate this gospel to the ends of the earth. That you might trust that this sovereign God uses his gospel to save souls. That you will not be able to keep your mouth shut. That you will be free to truly and lavishly share this gospel with everyone and anyone that you can get to. So, I think then that it seems wise that before we try to ask about how God's sovereignty works hand in hand with our evangelism, before we seek to understand how is it that our choices matter within this scope of God working meticulously in all things, it seems to me that the first thing we ought to consider is what evangelism actually is. I must tell you that this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning, answering this question, what is evangelism? Now, I know it seems like that might be a cop-out. might seem to you that I'm dodging the question, but I dare say that if we were to poll 100 believers, I'm talking about true Christians, men and women sitting in church houses just like this one, even within this room perhaps, if I were to poll you and to ask, what is evangelism? What is your hope? What is your goal? What are you doing when you do this thing called evangelism? I submit to you that the answers would be far wider ranging than you might first expect. And we cannot, very well ex- we cannot very well discuss how a thing falls under the umbrella of God's sovereignty if we can't all agree on what that thing actually is. We must define what we're talking about. Now, we've gone to great lengths to define what we mean when we talk about God's unconditional election. So now let's define what is evangelism. How does the, Bib- the Bible define the idea of evangelism? Now, sadly, this exercise is really one that does seem to be a lost art. It's much easier to speak in broad generalizations. It's much easier just to throw out their spiritual-sounding statements without ever actually pointing people to any kind of absolute truth, without ever actually defining what we mean, without ever actually working out the implications of what has been said. 
But dear children, words have meanings. And those meanings matter. We communicate using language. God has chosen to reveal himself to us using words. And so Christians, more than perhaps anyone else in all the world, we're to be a people who love words. We love defining words, understanding words, seeing how God's words work together. We should be a people in the business of words. So, what is evangelism? I submit to you that at the most basic level, evangelism is an act of God, excuse me, it's an act of love for God and love for neighbor in which we intentionally proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to lost and dying men with the hope that they might repent of their sins, trust in Christ as Lord, and be saved. That's my shot at a working definition. I'd imagine some of you could come up with something much more clear and concise. And as a matter of fact, I challenge you to do that. I think that would be a worthy exercise. After we're done here today, spend some time this afternoon thinking and praying and studying the scriptures and asking yourself, in my own words, how would I define this thing called evangelism? I would recommend a book to you that I find extremely helpful in this vein. It's J.I. Packer's book. It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's one that our staff has actually just started working through together. It's a short book, something like 120 pages. But what I find there is that in that short book, Dr. Packer does a better job of giving clear and concise statement about what evangelism is and is not, perhaps more clear than anything I've ever read. It was incredibly helpful to me as I thought about this matter right here. It helped to sharpen some of the lines and to define some of the edges. But again, going back to my statement, evangelism is an intentional proclamation. Now, I've often heard and matter of fact, I've, I've surely said at times, I've used the phrase, living out the gospel. If you haven't heard that phrase, and probably you've heard a often, quote, often given quote, that you are to preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Now, I understand the sentiment here. Jesus himself in Matthew 5, 16 said, let your light shine before men so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So when a man is converted, when a man has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and responded in true repentant faith, his whole life is transformed. Scripture calls us a new creation. Our thoughts and our desires, our affections, our motives, the spirit behind everything that we do, our priorities, the way we respond to our enemies, all of these things radically changed as a result of this gospel. But more than this, radically changed as a result of the work of the spirit of God within us. And so we should certainly expect that the Christian life will reflect the gospel. That the people around you, even non-believers, they would look to you and they, they wouldn't be able to help but ask themselves, what has this man seen? What does he know? What has this man experienced that makes him like this? Why are you no longer who you once were? Why do you no longer love the world and why do you seem to love this invisible God with so much? So surely people should ask, how did you get this way? And there should be something lovely, something attractive, something beautiful about the Christian life. I sincerely mean this. Scripture calls us to live lives of such personal holiness that anyone who would bring an accusa- accusation against you would be put to shame. We're to be a people who are blameless and above reproach. But, beloved, we cannot stop with acts of charity and goodness, as tempting as that may be. Because here's the thing. 
The believer who devotes himself to a private and personal lifestyle that's been changed by the gospel, one who never opens his word and gives his, his mouth and gives word to what it is that's changed him, never vocalizes the gospel that has so affected his life, he's very likely to be left alone by this world. You can believe in Jesus all that you want, but keep your faith to yourself. Faith is a private matter. Keep your Christianity confined to the church house or to your private home, but don't you dare bring it out into the public square. So generally speaking, as long as you keep your head down, keep your mouth shut, and follow those rules, you can be as Christian as you'd like to be, and you'll be left alone, at least for now. But the minute you speak, the minute you proclaim the truth of God's unchanging word, the minute you go public with your theology, the attacks will come. Friends will turn. Family will be divided. People will start digging up dirt. You'll find yourself on an island real quick. And so it's very tempting then to live the gospel without ever actually proclaiming the gospel. And you know how far short this falls. Firstly, because the gospel is not a thing that you lived out. The gospel is not a thing that you did or can do. The gospel is the good news about a thing which has been done by God. And so we must do everything that we can to draw attention off of ourself and onto him. That's the point of the entire Christian life. Especially that's the point of evangelism, is to get men to move their thoughts off of earthly things, off of the man standing in front of them, off of themselves, and onto God, to the eternal God, to the eternal things of heaven. I want you to think about Jesus' earthly ministry. It was a life filled with healing and helping, raising people from the dead, feeding hungry people by the thousands. Isn't that the very kind of thing that this world would applaud? And they loved him. They came in droves, but he never stopped there. Every time business seemed to be booming, every time the crowd seemed to be growing, he would open his mouth and he would preach. And the crowds would go away. Now, if someone was able to live out a wordless gospel and still fulfill the commission that had been given to him by the Father, wouldn't it be Jesus Christ? Now, I know that if you know your Bibles, your mind is probably going to 1 Peter chapter 3, where it says that a wife is to seek to win her husband without a word. But dear children, I tell you that if you read that text in its context, what you'll find is that this is certainly a Christian woman, that there is strife within the house because the husband does not believe the word. That yes, our lives are to be lovely. That yes, we are to magnify the gospel by the way that we live, but ultimately we must open our mouths and we must preach. We must speak. We must share the gospel. That's why Jesus told his disciples, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I've come out. That was the purpose. That was the purpose for Jesus coming, to proclaim the good news, to preach the gospel. Of course, to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Of course, to lay down his life, to purchase our redemption. Of course, to die and rise again for our salvation. But truly, Jesus' ministry was a preaching ministry. The words, the works, the miracles, the feedings, even the raising of men from the dead, these things were all there to give affirmation to his person and to his message. But it was always there, the message that must be proclaimed. So we must think similarly about our own lives. No, we don't raise people from the dead, but our good works. Any of the goodness and the personal piety that comes out of our life, we must view this as a frame around the gospel. There's a beautiful word from Paul to Titus, Titus 2.10, that we're to think in everything about the purpose of our life to adorn the doctrines of God, our Savior. 
the purpose of our life, not to make the gospel something that it's not. The gospel is glorious. Not to, not to somehow take the doctrines of God and make them into something more palatable, more relatable, more beautiful to the world, but that they are beautiful in and of themselves and that our, that our life is to be a frame around it. That it is truly the masterpiece. It is the centerpiece. And yet we're to do nothing to detract from that. We're to do nothing to disqualify ourselves from proclaiming that. And so evangelism is an intentional proclamation, specifically a proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. So again, going back to the ministry of Christ, no one would have taken offense at a Jewish man speaking in general terms about Yahweh, declaring the need to love God, declaring the necessity of doing good for the poor. This is a fairly benign message, at least for now in this country. You can proclaim a message like that, and most people will receive it. For the most part, there's no outrage when you tell people that God loves them, God has a good purpose for their life, that God desires to fill their life with his blessings. But that's not the message of Jesus Christ. What did he say in Mark 1.15? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. Dear children, you must hear this. You have not done evangelism. You have not proclaimed the gospel simply by making general reference to God. Evangelism is not just telling people the way that God has blessed you with this wonderful wife and obedient kids and a big house and a nice car. Evangelism isn't even just telling people how much you love Jesus. It isn't even just telling people that Jesus is Lord. It isn't even just telling people that Jesus is the Son of God. All of that is good, and it very well may help to break the ice. It gets men thinking about spiritual things. But ultimately, you have not done evangelism unless you have made some very broad, some very bold and declarative statements, some demanding statements. You must preach. You must use words to clearly proclaim the whole gospel, the exclusivity of Christ. The Romans would have allowed the Christians to follow on in their Christianity as long as they received Christ and all the other gods. As long as they worshiped Yahweh and all the other gods. So we must go beyond this. Now I do have, have one more word about what evangelism is not, what the gospel is not. The gospel is not your personal testimony. I know how popular this line of thinking is these days. I know just how many evangelistic trainings, they go right to this. That people are taught that the best way to share the gospel is to tell people your story. And boy, isn't this easy because don't people love to talk about their story? But your story is not the gospel. Sure, you can talk about how the gospel has changed your life. You can talk about your own conversion if appropriate, but you must be very, very careful because again, I tell you, the gospel is not primarily a story about you. You do not want the person sitting across from you focusing on you, not your life, not your walk, not the blessings that God has poured into your life. Remember, the gospel is not about a thing that you have done. It's not about the thing that the man sitting across from you can do. It's about the thing which God has done. The God of the universe saving unworthy sinners. So we must begin there. We must begin with God. Any of you that have come to our membership class, you'll know that it is, on the whole, it is a four-hour gospel presentation. And that we begin right here, we begin with the doctrine of God. Because to evangelize, to proclaim the gospel, we must begin with God. The character, the nature, the sovereign ownership of God over literally everything that is. And I cannot stress this enough. We must define terms. Who is God? 
But I can't just say the name of God and assume that everybody out there, even everybody in this room, is immediately thinking about the same thing. Wants to find who is this God. That's why we spent something like 18 months on Wednesday nights talking about the nature and the attributes of God. Of course you're not going to be able to unpack, nor should you try to unpack all of that before getting to the good news. You're dealing with the infinite and eternal creator of the universe. Finite man could not possibly understand or consume all that there is to know about him. But the reality is that the vast majority of this world, they have simply made up a God of their own imagination. A God who lives to serve them. God who is obligated to forgive them. And a God who demands nothing of them. So we must help them see the God of Scripture. I submit to you that that's perhaps the hardest part. Everyone thinks they know God. Everyone thinks they have an accurate picture of God, if in fact they believe that there is one. So we find the Apostle Paul there in Athens, Acts 17, 24, proclaiming that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he need anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, I always have to be careful at this point because the reality is I'd never move beyond it. I love theology proper. Literally, the burning and greatest desire, greatest passion of my life is to learn and to know and to think more rightly about God, to just lay my eyes upon the infinite scope and scale of his perfections, to bask in his unending glory. Again, it's the burning desire of my heart to see more of it, to speak more boldly and truly and accurately about it, and then to see the twinkle in your eyes when God works through the message of a mere man to bring you to the greater vision of who he is. As your eyes are open and you see him in the scripture as he's revealed himself, I could camp out there forever. I could sit back down here for 18 more months worth of Wednesday nights just talking about who God is, never moving on to man. And so I have to be very careful at this. But I tell you that I believe this passion comes because so many Christians, they neglect this. They immediately go to man. They immediately go to your problems. They immediately present Jesus Christ as a solution to everything that's broken in your life, and they never talk about the fact that that thing is broken because you're wrong with God. So I feel this compulsion. I think that you people, I think that you people that are still around, that come and want to join your lives to this church, I think you too, you have a burning passion to seek God as he really is. So whatever language you use and however long it takes, you must make clear, if you're to be faithful in your evangelism, you must make clear who God is. You must show this man standing before you the rightful claim of God as the creator of all that is. His infinite majesty and worth, his jealousy, his zeal for the glory of his own name, his complete and unchanging holiness. You must show this man standing before you that God hates sin, that God cannot condone, look upon, or allow into his presence sin. You must tell this man standing before you that this God whom you speak about is the God who has said that I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. You must show this man who God is. But you must not stop there. For then, once this man sees God as he really is, now he's ready to talk about man. You can speak about yourself if you must. It's probably appropriate to speak about the man standing across from you, but ultimately, you must speak about the state of all humanity. 
You must tell this man that every single man is guilty before God. Every single man who has ever been born is guilty before God, but that it hasn't always been this way. You must tell them about the way that God has created them. You must tell them that God created them as loved and precious and valuable. How the God of the universe created them and allowed all that they would possibly need, gave them everything they would possibly need to fulfill their purpose in this world. He met their every last need. Then he literally created them that they would enjoy a fountain of unending blessings, true joy in his presence. You must tell them that they are image bearers and that that is where the preciousness of their life comes from because they are made in the image of God. That their purpose is to reflect his glory to all the rest of creation. And that when he does this, that when man does this, they will find true satisfaction. You must tell the man that this is the way that God has made him. This is the way that God had intended for man to relate to him. And then we must make clear how this sin has come in. Again, I say that we are all guilty before him. Whenever able, whenever time allows, whenever the opportunity is there, and I'm sharing the gospel, I always do my best to go back to the first three chapters of Genesis. Right back to the beginning. I take them to Adam. I tell him, do you see that man there reaching out his hand to take that fruit from that tree? You were in that man. His guilt is your guilt. You are guilty before God because you have rebelled against God in Adam. We have all sinned, and therefore we all stand guilty before the living God. And then you show this man just what the Apostle Paul means when he says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You must make clear that sin is not a mistake or a sad decision. You must make clear to him that sin is not something that makes God sad or that robs us from the good that he wants to do for us. That sin is trading the infinite glory of God in exchange for the things that he has created. That sin is an intentional rejection about the truth of God in exchange for lies. That sin is a failure to honor God as our creator. That sin is a refusal to give thanks to God as the one who has given us everything. That sin is an overflow of the heart that seeks to deny God and to place ourselves upon his throne. That sin is lawlessness. That sin is hatred for God and love for darkness. That sin is a posture of rebellion against the Lord of the universe. You must help this man know exactly what sin is. You see, there's going to be this temptation in his heart to only focus on the externals, to only focus on the consequences. And then he's going to try and go in to fix those. So you must show this man that at his very core, that deep within his soul, he hates God. And this sin has left this man so broken and spiritually dead and alienated from God, there's nothing he can do to get back. We must get this right. Because if we simply stop with an infinitely holy God, and a radically corrupt man, we will either leave men hopeless or perhaps believing that it is up to them to fix it. Perhaps believing that there are some things that they could do, some efforts they could take, some church that they could join, some prayer that they could offer that would make themselves right with God. So we must make clear with them that not only is no one righteous, but in the words of Isaiah, that we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Filthy rags. You must show this man. You must make it clear to this man. And this is where things can begin to get really uncomfortable. That's why it's important that this man standing across from you knows that you love him. That's why whenever possible, you must invest in people's lives. That's why it's almost never good to go barging into someone's life and just hijack the conversation. Remember that I told you that evangelism is an act of love for your neighbor. And it takes time. It takes exposure. 
takes opening yourself up to get hurt in order to show a man that you love him. But you've got to prove to this man that he's more than a box to be checked. Dr. Packer Packer talks about it being a, a scalp to be claimed. Do you genuinely care for the eternity of this man's soul? You care about where he will end up. That you'll walk with him as he struggles and considers the things that you have said to him. That you will love him even if he rejects this gospel that you proclaim. Again, I say that he is more than just a project to be completed. You must know that you love him. Because what you're about to show him next is going to be very difficult to receive. That even his best efforts... Even the most righteous thing that fallen man could ever do in his best efforts, it is nothing. It is a polluted garment. It is something so stained and soiled and rotten that it is unpleasing to God. Love, you must make clear that this man is not only lost in his sin, but that there's absolutely nothing he can do to clean himself up. There's nothing he can do to make up even for the most faint and passing of impure thoughts. That This man is truly an enemy of God, completely unable to do anything to make it right. And then if that isn't enough, you've got to talk to this man about the day of judgment. You see, man might be tempted to wonder. I mean, truthfully, this is the way most of the world reacts, isn't it? Yes, I know that God is good and perfect and holy, and I know that I'm none of those things, and I know there's nothing I can do. That ship has sailed. Most men know this. That ship has sailed, and there's nothing I can do to make myself worthy of the love of God. I know I can't possibly make up to him for the things that I've done, but it'll all be okay in the end. Most men live like they couldn't care less about the fact that they are at war with God. Some of them, they believe that God will surely be obligated to show them mercy when they die. While others, they laugh. They joke. They downplay the reality of hell. So you must tell this man standing across from you, there's no need for theatrics. There's no need for over-the-top emotion. We're not seeking a forced conversion here. You tell them with boldness and clarity and as much brutal honesty as you can muster, you tell them in the words of Paul that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. This man must know about the judgment of God. You see so many well-meaning people, they present the gospel as an answer for the guilt that we feel for our sins. And this fits right in with the world. The world has devoted themselves to convincing you and your children that your problem is your thoughts about yourself. Your problem is the anxiety and the depression and the frustration, yes, even the sense of guilt that you feel when you look in the mirror. And so so oftentimes, then, what passes for evangelism? What passes for the gospel is nothing more than driving a man's thoughts to how crummy he feels about himself, how inadequate his life feels, how unfulfilled his life feels. And then they present Jesus as a way to overcome all of that. The gospel then becomes nothing more than a way to get right with ourselves. The gospel becomes all about forgiving ourselves and then moving on into the blessings that God has always been standing there trying to give you. And in the end, this kind of gospel leaves man completely unaware that his problem is not with himself. His problem is with God. So you must tell this man, You must proclaim clearly and boldly. Again, this is no time to be clever. This is no time for poetic talk. You don't need to hype it up and jump up and down and lash yourself like the prophets of Baal. You look this man in the eye and you tell him, the great day of terrible final judgment is coming. That every single man, both living and dead, will stand before God. 
He will answer for every deed, every word, every thought, every motive he has ever had. Sins he himself doesn't know that he has committed. Those things that happen in the deepest darkness of his soul, they will all be laid bare before the judge. He will not grade on a curve. He will not measure us according to some earthly measuring stick, but according to God's ferocious and unyielding holiness. His perfect standard of righteousness, this man will be judged. And the verdict coming down from the bench will be guilty. You are guilty of treason. You must proclaim all of this to the man standing across from you. And then by the grace of God, you, you pray for the grace of God that he would cause this man then to see. To see and feel the weight of his sin as it really is. To see the blazing glory of God against the backdrop, the darkness of his own heart. And then you must tell this man, you must show him that God is furious. You must tell this man that the thing he must fear more than anything else in all the world is the wrath of God. That God is not handing down some disinterested judgment. That this is the fury that he has for sin and sinners. The anger, again I say, the wrath of God. That that is what awaits this man on the other side of judgment. For this man who has rejected God and enjoyed his good gifts. For this man who have killed God if he could have gotten his hands upon him. You must show this man that his sins are not against some impersonal law. They're against the infinitely worthy lawgiver. This man must understand that God is furious. He must know that this judgment day might come when he least expects it. That there is no guarantee of tomorrow. You must tell this man that it will come like lightning. That the world will be going on with its business like it always has. Men will be marrying and giving their daughters in marriage. Men will be eating and drinking and, worry, and, and working and doing all the normal things that they have done. Making plans for tomorrow. And at the moment when they least expect it, he will return. And that while his return will be swift, the consequences, the results, the punishment, it never ends. This man must know that the wrath of God will never be satisfied in hell. And again, I know how hard this is. I know how uncomfortable this makes you, even the thought of saying this to people that you love. But you must show this man that this is part of the glory of God. That no, he does not delight in the destruction of the wicked and that we do not delight in the destruction of the wicked. And yet we do celebrate his infinite goodness, his perfect righteousness, his unyielding holiness. This is all part of the glory of God. He would not be a just judge if he simply overlooked sin. He would not be the all-glorious God of the universe if he allowed men to spurn his name. And so, no, we don't delight in the destruction that's about to come upon this man if he does not turn today. But we aren't bashful about it either because we know that all that God is is good, that we are truly blessed to see all of God that he has chosen to reveal himself, and this includes his wrath. This includes the judgment that will destroy people that we most desperately love. So we must call this man across from us to see all of this. This is the bad news that must come before the good news. And unless and until they understand this reality, they cannot understand Christ. This is why I pray the way that I do at the end of our reading of the text every single week, most every single week. What do I say? God, show me yourself. Show me myself. I pray that he never lets us get tired of that. Pray that he never lets us move on. I desperately want to see God as he is. And 
That's why I don't, I don't feel the least bit bashful about the fact that we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning. We already have and we're not done yet. We're going to spend the majority of our time this morning just laying out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, we have moved on from milk to meat, but dear friends, this is always the center of it all. It's always standing right there. It's always the reason for our hope. So I pray that we never forget this. I pray that we're always keeping before our eyes who God is. I pray it each week. God, show me yourself as you really are. Show me myself as I really am. Allow me to understand that the day of judgment is coming. Allow me to feel the weight of the wrath that I deserve, and then and only then can I see Christ as my only hope. God, show me yourself, show me myself, and then show me my Savior. Show me Christ. Don't show me the gifts that he brings. Don't show me how he's the end of my guilt. Don't show me how he's going to fix all of my problems in this life. Show me Christ, because he is the promise. That's some indiscriminate place called heaven. Christ, he is the treasure. He is the hope. He is the promise. He is the center of it all. This is what we're calling men to. We're not calling men to some external things that can be had outside of Christ because the moment that they are, I'll go get them without Christ. We're calling men to see Christ as their only hope and to come to him. And they cannot see Christ unless they see God as he is. Unless they see themselves as they are. But even in saying the name of Christ, we realize we must define that term too. How many men fly the banner of Christ over their life and have no clue who he is? So we must show them that he is the infinite, the eternal son of God. We must show them how he condescended, stepping down from heaven, taking upon himself the fullness of humanity, living a life of humiliation and poverty and mockery and suffering. How he became a, everything that a man is meant to be, and he did not cheat. He did not have some divine humanity. He was fully a man living in dependence upon the Spirit and obedience to the Father. He fulfilled all righteousness. He was everything that man was meant to be in perfect communion with God, everything that the first man, Adam, failed to do, everything the first man, Adam, did to drag all of humanity into sin, the second man, Jesus Christ, he did it all in perfection, unflinching obedience in the face of hostility and attack and even temptations from the devil himself. He carried on in obedience and did every last thing that love and law requires. You must show them that this is who Christ is. And then you must show this man that this Christ, he laid down his life. Though he had done no sin, that he had spoken no evil, though even the intentions of his heart were always pure and perfect and good, that he willingly laid down his life as an act of love, obedience to the Father and love for men, that he died like a violent criminal. He died like a sinful man. He took upon himself, in fact, the sins of his people and was treated in the way that we deserved, the full weight upon himself. This isn't just about a man dying upon a cross. There have been thousands, perhaps millions of men over the ages that have died with great bravery for great causes. But there's only one who, while he died upon that tree, the infinite wrath of his father was poured out upon him. In the words of Isaiah 53.10, that it pleased the Lord to crush him. You must tell this man that it's an act of love, is an act of mercy, is an act of grace, and an act of judgment and righteousness that the God of the universe did not let up, that he didn't take it easy, that he didn't pull up short, that he didn't allow Jesus to tap out, that the full wrath of the Father was poured out upon the Son, and it pleased him to do so. You must tell him about the cup of the Father's wrath and how when Jesus Christ declared that it is finished, he meant that he had consumed it all, every last drop. And that then three days later, just as Scripture had written and just as Jesus had promised, you must tell this man standing across from you that this Jesus Christ, he rose from the grave to give evidence that he is who he says he is. 
to give evidence that the Father's wrath truly had been satisfied, that Jesus rose from the grave, and that he showed himself not just to one or two people, not just to the apostles, but to hundreds of people he had revealed himself, not as he once was, but in a new and glorious body, a body fitted for heaven. Then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he lives there to make intercession on behalf of his people, that he's constantly speaking to the Father, bringing before the Father all that he had accomplished on our behalf, constantly bringing it there as he speaks to the Father on our behalf. But more than this, dear children, you must listen here, more than this, and this is what is missing from almost every gospel presentation. You must look into the eyes of this man standing across from you, and you must tell him that Jesus Christ reigns. You must tell this man that Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe. All authority, all power, all dominion. In the words of uh, Revelation 5.12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive all power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That he is the infinite and glorious king of the universe. You must tell this man saying across from you exactly this. You must tell this man that Jesus is not his buddy. Jesus is not his homeboy. Jesus is not his t- golden ticket to heaven. That Jesus is king of kings and lord of the universe. You see this. You must show this man that Jesus is the rightful ruler of all that is because he has conquered sin, he has conquered Satan, he has conquered death, and that he reigns as king today. He's not asking your permission to reign. He does not need your allegiance to reign. He does not need your works to conquer the world. He is king today. That when all is said and done, that every last enemy will be placed under his feet, that he will return to a world on their knees some of them in praise to the glory of his name and others in abject terror because they know just how badly they've messed up. But one way or another, every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me be clear. This is not a word-for-word manuscript for how you're supposed to share the gospel every time. There is discernment in this. But church, we live in a world surrounded by people that believe they are saved because they have tipped their religious hat to Jesus. These people genuinely act like they did Jesus a solid because they said some magic prayer. People who could not tell you the least bit about the gospel and what it really means. People who claim the name of Jesus Christ and they have no clue who he is. And worse than this, they have no clue what he demands. For years, we've lived as a people who believed that the whole world was just sitting right there at the five-yard line, and we just needed to help them punch it across. Everybody out there knows who God is, and everybody out there knows who they are, and they're just desperately seeking, searching an answer. If someone would just give them that one missing piece, they would turn, they would repent, and they would be saved. Children, that's not the truth. The vast majority of this world hates God. Amongst those that hate God, many of them think they love God because they've created a God of their own imagination. So we must show them who this God is. We must drive them here. And you must use whatever words God sees fit to put upon your heart. You must use those words to show this man all of this. You must look this man in the eye. He must know that you love him. These are hard conversations. Man must know that you love him because then you must look this man in the eye and you must tell him, I must be very clear with you, my friend. I'm not asking you to let Jesus into your heart. I'm commanding you in the name of God to repent. As a herald, as a messenger, 
is an ambassador of Jesus Christ, I am calling you this day to turn and surrender to the king of heaven and earth. Repent and trust in Christ. That's the call. We aren't just sharing some interesting information with people. How many times have you shared the gospel with somebody and they just went, interesting, interesting. Thank you for telling me that. You probably did it wrong. We aren't just making people aware of a problem. Evangelism is doing all of that and bringing men to this point right here. This is what we pray for. This is what we desperately pray for. We pray, dear God, would you use these words Would you send your spirit? Would you cause this man to understand what I have said, to see the glory of it all, to repent, to believe, and to be saved? You haven't evangelized if you don't call the man across from you to respond to the things that you've just said. So we must tell the man that if he turns from his sin, that if he cries out to God for mercy and puts all of his hope in Christ, that not only will he be forgiven of his rebellion, because of Jesus' atoning death, that not only has the wrath of God been satisfied because Jesus was put forth by, as a propitiation by his blood, but that he will be counted as righteous. Absolutely and infinitely perfect and righteous and pure. He will be received as a son. Not, not just a, a captured prisoner of war, that he will be received as a son, that everything that the true son, the beloved son, the blessed son, everything that the eternal son of God has done, it will be credited to your account. It will be as if you yourself lived the perfect life, as if you yourself had pleased God with every every word and every thought and every deed. You must tell this man that there's an offer of a trade, his guilt for Christ's righteousness. You hold this out freely and honestly before this man, knowing that every single man who receives this gift, he will be saved. So you offer to this man, would you turn, would you repent, would you believe? Would you trust that if you will do this, that God will shower you with unending spiritual blessings, even as you continue to suffer in this world, that everything that the Son of God deserves will be yours, that you can come and rest. You can rest from your labor. You can rest from your rebellion. You can rest from the fighting. You can rest from the weight of your sin, that you can lean back into Christ as your all in all. You offer this to the man. You tell this man, this is the good news, because this is what God has done. That you show him that this is where the love of God is seen like nowhere else in all the universe. See, if we just leave man with the judgment of God, they have a very lopsided picture of who he is. But the problem is if we skip to the love of God, they also have a very lopsided picture of who this God is. We show them that this God who is love, that this is how this love is seen. And the pouring out of his wrath and judgment upon sinners. that every last sin will be paid for, either by his son or by the rebel. But that those who turn and trust and repent, they will be received as sons themselves. We offer this freely. We tell these people there's nothing they can do to demand it. There's nothing they must do to earn it, but that it may very well end up costing them everything. This isn't the time to short sell. This isn't the time to soft pedal. This isn't time to to downplay. We've got to explain to this man what repentance is. We're not trying to close a deal here. Again, we're not trying to check a box. We're not trying to build a church. We're sharing the gospel. We're praying that God would save this man's soul. So we've got to show him what this is. And I understand, again, how offensive this is. I can look around at some of your faces and tell, I don't like that version of the gospel. I know what you're saying is true, but I would never say that to a man. 
Can we just stick with John 3.16 and God's so loving the world? Yes, dear friends, but read the whole chapter. For you are already condemned, and the wrath of God remains upon you because you have not believed. Do you understand? It is not love for a man to look him in the eye while you know that he's dying and pretend as if it weren't so. It is not love for a man to tell him that he is right with God when in fact he is at war. It is love for man to look at him in the eye, tell him how things really are, and tell him his only hope. We must tell him that his only hope is to repent. We must show him what repentance is. Again, I say we cannot pull up short. We can't feel sorry for the man standing across from us. We love him enough to tell him the truth, just as Jesus did. What did Jesus do to the rich young ruler? Because he loved the man so very much, he told him the truth. You must sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then you may follow me. He told another man, and no, you don't go back and bury your father. You come today, and you follow me. He tells every single one of us, if you want to come after me, you must take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. It is not love to present something that is not a shell game. You promise all the gifts that Jesus has to offer without any repentance, without any need of dealing with your sin and turning and falling at his feet. You must call these men to count the cost. This man who's standing across from you, you must tell him, count the cost. Don't make a hasty decision. That's why we don't do altar calls anymore. Do you understand this? This isn't a hasty decision. This isn't something you decide in five minutes. Oh, dear friends, it will happen in an instant. The power of God will come into your house and into your heart, and you will be changed in an instant. But we're not pressing for hasty decisions. We're calling men to count the cost. We're pushing them to really consider, am I ready to die? Am I ready to die to myself? Am I ready to embrace whatever suffering comes? Am I ready to give up my right to be offended? Am I ready to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and King? Do I trust in his promises? Do I trust that his promises will be enough? Do I trust if what this man standing next to me has said is true, then I will have all I will ever need, even if I lose everything else? You must look to this man standing across from me and say, let me make very clear what I'm saying to you, my friend. I'm not telling you that you must do something today. I'm telling you you must repent and believe today and every single day until the day you die. Now, because... So few men evangelize like that. And again, please hear me. I've done it wrong 10 times for every one time I've done it right. I tell you today that my burning passion is to see and know the glory of God. I'll tell you there was a day when my burning passion was to put checks on a paper telling you how many times I'd share the gospel. I was a bull in a china shop. The reality is I could have cared less how they responded. I could have cared less whether they ended up in heaven or hell. It was about me being a good boy. Me being a soldier of God. Me being brave to go bust in places where people are just trying to mind their own business and trying to talk to them about the most intimate part of their life. Because so few men give gospel presentations like this and because what passes for evangelism in so many Christian circles today would not only be foreign, but completely offensive to the vast majority of the early church. Contemporary Christianity has come to believe, many churches have come to believe that this is a thing that can be done in our own power. 
that I can share the gospel and that you can respond in repentant faith and there's no need of any external influence, there's no need of the Holy Spirit to work in any transformative way, that this is just a thing that we just do. They've gone to trainings. They've sat under experts who have told them, you follow this pattern, you follow this script, you share these Bible verses with this many people and this many Christians are guaranteed to spit out the back end. They completely missed the part where the Spirit of God is like the wind. We know not where it comes from. We know not where it's going. We can't predict it. We can't control it. We can't demand it. We can't formulate our way into it. They believe this is the thing that they can do in and of their own power. And dear friends, I told you, when, when I gave you my definition of what evangelism is, you saw that I said that we present the gospel with the hopes, not with the guarantee. We don't control the results. We plant, we water, but only God causes the growth. But because man has so reduced this thing to something that it's not, he's so made it about something that it's not, we've convinced ourselves it's a thing we can do on our own power, that God does not have to intervene, that God doesn't have to change a man's heart, that God doesn't have to call a man to life. Oh, sure, the Spirit of God comes to live in a man once he chooses to believe, but sharing the gospel, receiving the gospel in faith, this is the thing that natural man can do, to, can do on his own. This is our part. This is the part that we do in our own power. But is that what Jesus said? No. Every single time a man rejected him, what did he say? You could not come to me. My father has drawn you. What did he say when the rich young ruler walked away? His disciples looked around and said, well, then who can be saved? Oh, with man? Nobody. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus is calling you to do an impossible thing. Do you understand? He's not calling you to do a hard thing. He's not calling you to do a super spiritual thing. He's not calling you to do a thing you must be trained to do. He's calling you to do an impossible thing. Now, let me be clear. I can present to you a great five-point presentation like the best of them. I can be charming when I need to be charming. I can push you for a decision. I can manipulate you. I can work on your emotions. I can all but guarantee you get me in the right situation with the right person. I can get them to say a prayer. And I can do all of this without giving any thought to the transformational work of the Holy Spirit in their life. And again, I say this is why so many believers are so confused when we look to them and we say, God must cause a man to be born again before he will believe in the gospel. Unless God causes this man to be born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. Unless the power of God, which created light and stars and all that is, breathes into this man's heart, he will never see Jesus Christ as truly glorious. He will never turn and repent at faith. And again, I say because so much of the world has no clue what evangelism is, they think they've mastered it. No need for the Spirit of God to interject himself. We've got a formula. We've got a plan. We've got a method. And look at all the people in our church. It's working. I don't know why I keep looking at you today, Brian. You're just in my sweet spot there. You're doing great. You know the gospel, but guy's getting a heavy dose of it today. But any of us that have ever done it, any of you that have ever looked in the eyes of a lost and sinful man and you said these hard things to them, you haven't tweaked their emotions. You haven't pressured them for a decision. You haven't given them five minutes to run forward during a worship service. Now, 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 now. You must make the decision now. Now, 
Any of you that have actually called a man to turn from himself, to let loose of any claim he has of this life, and to throw himself on the mercy of Jesus Christ, you know just how helpless you are in this. You know just how helpless your words are. You know just how powerless your words are. You know just how unable the man standing across from you is to come to Christ. The unregenerate man, he cannot marvel at the glory of God because he hates the light. He cannot feel the weight of his own sin because he loves the darkness. He cannot see Jesus Christ as his ultimate treasure because he's spiritually blind. He cannot respond in repentant faith because he is dead in his sins. Friends, I'm telling you, the gospel found in this word right here, it is nothing but the stench of death to natural man. You present it to him and you say, smell the aroma of life. And he says, that's a dead corpse. Get it away from me. You know this. Look around you, dear brothers and sisters. If a Christian were to dare stand up in this day and age and say, you know what? The God of the universe says you don't have the right to kill a baby in its mother's womb. What's the response? It's the stench of death. You look to that same man, you say, no, I love you enough to tell you the truth. I would die myself to protect the baby in your womb. This church will give every last resource we have to care for that child that you don't want. And what's the response? You bigoted, hate-filled snob. I hope you burn in hell. It's the stench of death. And you know what breaks my heart the most? They are utterly sincere in what they say because they believe it. These people are lying. They've believed a lie. They sincerely believe that we are the devil, that what we offer to them is death because they believe that they have life. A man like that cannot receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't you understand? You don't have the ability. You've ever gone out and shared the gospel like this, the full counsel of God's word called men to surrender, to repent, to trust in Jesus Christ. A full-throated gospel presentation, unvarnished in all its goodness. You realize you're calling a man to stop being a hater of God and start being a lover of Christ. You're t- you realize that you're telling this man, you're commanding him to stop loving sin. You're urging them to surrender in a war that they've waged their entire life against God and trust that he's going to receive them as son. Man doesn't have the ability to do this. Neither you nor the man standing across from you has the ability to make him love the thing that he hates and hate the things that he loves. Have none of you ever tried to get a toddler to taste spinach? I can hold you down and force it down your gullet, but this is not the gospel. So I truly believe that that's why modern evangelism has become what it is. Because we go out and we, we, okay, we'll try this thing. We'll try this thing. We'll preach nothing but Christ and Christ crucified, and we'll try it. And you know what? We don't get the results. We don't get the results everybody told us we're supposed to get. And people we love are dying and going to hell. So we start to feel real helpless real quick, and it seems like we're a failure. The whole thing seems pointless. And then pretty quickly you realize that I can't change the hearts of men. But I can change the gospel in a way that men will love it. They don't like what I'm serving. Let me try something different. And we don't do this intentionally, right? You don't do this intentionally. You're looking at someone you love and you want them to go to heaven. So what do you do? 
You want to take down every possible barrier. You don't like the wrath of God, we won't talk about that. You don't like surrender, we won't talk about that. You don't like the idea of reading scripture and coming to church and giving your life to the body, we won't talk about that. It's going to make you all these promises and say, if you just utter the name of Jesus Christ, if you just raise your hand in a worship service, if you just sign a card and hand it in to me, then I'll promise you that you're saved and I'll convince myself that it's true. Friend, I'm telling you, you've been set free from all these thoughts. You've been set free from believing that the results are up to you. You've been set free from worrying about whether you say the right word or you quote the right verse or you stumble over it. Dear friends, I'm telling you because it's all of God. He will use you as broken and busted and inequipped as you feel. Do you understand? I know how you feel. You feel insufficient. I got good news for you. You're not sufficient. You were never meant to be. God could have done this any other way. He could have caused the rocks to cry out. He could have chosen that he was just going to take his gospel and implant it into the heart of a man whenever he saw fit. We know that he has not used preachers at times. He can send dreams. He can cause a baby like John the Baptist to leap within his mother's womb. He can do whatever he wants. But he's chosen to use you as busted and broken as you are. He's chosen to use you as you, inadequate as you feel. He's chosen to use you, and he will. He will use you, and he will save souls. I'm watching my watch. I've got more that I want to say, but I've got to get to the actual question, right? But you see why it's important we dis- discuss what evangelism is. We don't even know what we're talking about. Then, of course, we see no need of God's sovereign grace coming into their life, his efficacious grace bringing them to life. Of course, we don't see any conflict there because we're in charge of that peace. Isn't that what we've been told? God takes over after repentant faith. So, man, I gotta move quick. So when, we, when I first made peace with this, when I first came to accept this tension that exists between God's absolute sovereignty, his unconditional election, and the, the, the reality that man makes real choices with real consequences and therefore is really responsible, I came very close to just landing in a place where I did about prayer, that it's just God commanded it, so I will do it. The Great Commission says to go and make disciples. I'm going to go and make disciples. And I trusted that God was the one that was actually making disciples. I trusted that God was actually the one that was saving people. And so then I saw evangelism as nothing more than really a test about me. And so I'm standing here, and I'm sharing the gospel with you. And I'm like, yeah, God saved you. God hadn't saved you. I don't know. He's in charge of that. I'm about being obedient right now to God, and my thoughts are all on self. But is that what you see in the Gospels? Is that what you see in the life of the Apostle Paul? Think about the desperation with which he tried to get to men everywhere he could, literally laying down his life, everything that he had. Does that look like a man that because he knew that God was sovereign over salvation thought, well, whether I go or whether I stay doesn't really matter? No, no. His burning desire was to get the gospel into the ears of men. And I know this temptation, I know this fear that so many men have If you accept this belief that God is actually sovereign over salvation, that he's actually chosen who will and will not be saved, that no one will ever share the gospel, there will be no missionaries any longer. Let me read you a list of names. George Whitfield, David Brainerd, William Carey, David Livingston, Adonai Judson, Charles Simeon, Henry Martin. I'm out of time where I could go on and on and on and on. Calvinists, the lot of them. So many of the great heroes of, our, so, uh, of the church, so many of the great missionary heroes that we tell our children to look up to, all of them Calvinists, all of them with a strong belief in the sovereignty of God, all of them knowing that I will go and I will share the gospel and only those whom God has chosen will be saved. God could rise up rocks to save those men right where they are, but I will give my life and my fortune. I will literally die to get this gospel to them. 
They believe the words of Romans 10, 14, that how will they hear without a preacher? That is God's chosen method, that we will go and we will preach. And I remind you then, as I did last week, that God uses means. That yes, God exercises meticulous providence over all things, but he does so primarily through the use of what we view as ordinary means. God heals men, men by means of prayer. God calls men to life by the preaching of the gospel. That he ordains not only the ends, but the means. He says, this is the way I will save, and therefore he plants within your heart a desire, a burning passion like Jeremiah. It's like a fire in my bones. I cannot keep quiet. I so love you. I so love God. I so trust in this gospel. I can't keep my mouth shut, but to proclaim to you the good news of Jesus Christ, to call you to repent. He says, I've ordained the means just as I've ordained the ends. And we know this in every other area of life. We stand here whenever we dedicate a baby, and we say, God has written the days of this child's life in his book before there was one. We know this. We can't add a day to our life. We can't shorten our life one second. But you keep breathing. You keep eating. You keep going to the doctor when you're sick because apparently you believe that God uses means. Apparently you believe that that's the ordained means by which God has promised he will keep you to the very end. And this is truly fundamental because this is where I'll end, I suppose. It's truly fundamental because So, so I move beyond that to understanding, no, 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 this is more than, this is more than just a, a show of allegiance to God and my sharing the gospel to you, that what I'm doing is I've, I've got this succulent stake and I'm standing before a bunch of men and they all appear to be dead, but only some, some of them are just sleeping, that I would wave this stake under their nose and that those whom God has brought to life and given eyes to see and ears to hear, they will smell it and then they will respond to it. They will sit up. They will receive it. They will love it. You see, what I believed was that there was some other work that God had done, some regenerative work, some, 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 other, some other means that God had used to call these men to life and then I was just out there searching for those that God had previously called to life. Are you with me? But that's not the picture of the Bible. Now, Please hear me very clearly. I'm not saying that a man can respond in repentant faith if God hasn't caused him to be born again. That must happen. That must happen. Man does not respond. He must be born again to see the kingdom of God. He must have the light of God, the glory of God shining in his heart in order to respond in repentant faith to the gospel. These things must happen. But the gospel also, the scripture also makes abundantly clear that it's the very word that we proclaim that calls men to life. Hear that again. It is through the very gospel we proclaim that God calls these men to life. The two things aren't separated. Do you understand? I'm not out Easter egg hunting. I'm being used of God to literally call men to life. You're not impressed, but you will be. 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. That we are out there preaching the word of God, and it is by that word that men are born again. Do you understand now? You're out there making a hash of it. You're out there proclaiming the gospel, and you're forgetting stuff. You're crying when you shouldn't cry. You're nervously laughing. You're twisting your words backwards. You, you, you said the one thing you shouldn't say about something. You made an absolute mess of it. And by that word, the God of the universe may be calling the man across from you to life. He's doing the impossible through your busted words. Do you understand now? There's power. There's power. 
when the Spirit of God comes and works right alongside the preaching of men, through even the preaching of men. I'm going to read one more. I've got to read one more Bible verse to you. Because we know the, the vast majority of men resist, right? The vast majority. Right there, we're doing this. We're doing this. We're calling and we're calling and we're calling. And they're just, they're not hearing it. They're not responding. They're not coming to life. They're not believing it. Nothing's happening. I thought you said there was power in this word. I thought you said there was power in the call. I thought you said you were calling men to life. So again, you begin to feel like a failure. And, and, and certainly we lament over this. Jesus lamented over this. He stood over Jerusalem. He said, I would have called you if you would have, you would have come to me. He meant it, by the way. He meant it. They would have come. They would have been saved. Just as Stephen calls them a stiff-necked people, that they're resisting God. It's true. They're resisting God because they hate God. They're not coming to Christ because they hate Christ. If they would have come, they would have been saved. They would have believed they would have been, they would have been saved. And Jesus mourns over this, and we, we mourn over this. But we know that there are men out there whom God has chosen. That's what he promises the apostle Paul. He says, no, go back into that town because there's more. I have more people there that have not yet heard this news, and it is by that news that I will call them to life. How do you know that men have been chosen by God? Because in your calling, you hear the calling of God, and it brings, brings them to life. Right alongside your word. It sounds like the same word to everybody. That's the reality. I've preached the word of the gospel in this room, and there are some of you that sound nothing like, like nothing but Charlie Brown's teacher. Most of the kids, I'd imagine, just wow, 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 wow. I hear this dude every week. But for some of you, it's the word of life because above and beyond and through and outside of that, you're the word of your father calling you to life, like Jesus calling Lazarus out of the grave. Get up. He didn't think about it. He didn't check with anybody else. He didn't get his stuff together. He got up and he went. That's the effectual calling of God that comes right through the calling of men. We don't hear it. We don't know it. We may not even realize it in the moment. We may walk away thinking this was a complete failure and nothing happened. And then 10 years later, you run into man, you realize, oh, God called this man to life. One more verse. I said one more verse. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Christ Jesus. Dear friends, you have no idea the power, the power of the Holy Spirit working through the word that you proclaim to those around you. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I, I thank you that this doesn't rest on us, our abilities, our power, our brilliance, our anything. That Father, you can, you can and you do to make very clear much like culling down of Gideon's army, that you can, you can use the weakest and the frailest and the most unlearned of men and that through their word you can call men to life. So Father, I pray that you would do that, that you would give us a burning desire to do this and that we would see men come to life. Father God, we ask too that you would be glorified by the words that we now sing, that we would sing truth about you and that we would be changed. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.